when Pastor John called me and said, what, you know, we're doing this preaching series, we want to invite the associates back, and, you know, what, what might you want to preach on? And he listed out a bunch of topics, and I said, oh, I'll take that one. And John's like, great, that's really good that you're going to take that one, because that one's money. Um, <laughs> People don't often like to talk about money in church. Uh, it's a subject that we kind of like think the church should just never address because we don't want the church messing with our, our finances. But it is all around us. It is like an integral part of our lives. I mean, if you think about how many messages about money we are bombarded with on a daily basis, I mean, we're monitoring our checkbooks or our debit cards. We're monitoring stock prices. The news has, you know, reports of how the economy's doing. We're monitoring what kind of income is coming into our house, how much we're spending. Uh, our entertainment is full of messages about money, if you think about it. I mean, there's movies about money like greed and Wall Street. And uh, then there's, you know, our songs about money, TV shows about winning money. And if you're not watching a TV show about winning money, you're watching a TV show that has commercials where people want you to buy stuff so you can look like you have money. I mean, it is all around us. Our culture sends us messages daily about money, about where we find our value, where we find our security, you know, how we are perceived by others in the world by, on the basis of what we wear and what we own and what we drive, uh, how much money we make, how much we can buy. Our sense of comfort and security is measured in some ways by how big our bank accounts are, uh, what we have saved, what we can pay for. Uh, we're thinking about, you know, if you're getting closer to my age, you know, do I have enough money to retire? Do I have enough money to pay for a a college education. Um, there's, you know, questions about do we have enough money for this house or this apartment? Do we have enough money to afford health insurance or God forbid if anything goes wrong and our health really tanks? Is there enough money? We are inundated and yet when the church talks about money, we're like, oh no, 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 don't go there. Don't talk to me about money. But to tell you the truth, I don't think the church talks about money enough. Really, when John listed out a whole bunch of topics, and there were lovely topics you know, that are part of this sermon series, and he got to money, I'm like, that one, I will do that one. Because that one's important. All of them are important. But money's important and nobody likes to talk about it. Jesus talked about money a lot, though. If you read your gospel accounts, Jesus talked about money quite a bit. He talked about coins. He talked about crops. He talked about how many fish were caught, what you would do with them. He talked about taxes. He talked about God providing for us. So this morning, I thought it would be great to look at a conversation Jesus has with a man who approached him with a question, and the question wasn't about money, so we're not starting there. Uh, yay! Um, we're in the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 10. It is printed there on uh, your insert, and it starts with verse 17 like this. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I am notoriously awful at filling in blanks. I work with Pastor Todd. Todd likes to fill in blanks. So I will just say right now, we are in need. Go ahead, fill that blank in, and we'll just move on. Um, the encounter begins with Jesus um, and this man kneeling before him. And it's easy enough to just run right past that because we know we got several more verses to go, and this has nothing to do with money. But I want to stop there for a moment because the kneeling is significant. It shows that the man is humble. 
when he kneels before Jesus, he is showing deference to Jesus. He's not approaching Jesus as an equal. He's not approaching Jesus and expecting Jesus to bow down in front of him. But he comes and he kneels before Jesus. And if you read enough gospel accounts, you'll realize that there's only one group of people that kneels down in front of Jesus. And those are people who need healing. Those are people who need healing. Healing stories begin with somebody kneeling in front of Jesus. Which leads to the question, what's this man's sickness? What is his woundedness? From what does he need to be healed? And there's also a bit of urgency because it says that the man has run up to Jesus. He needs to know something. There's something on his mind and he needs to have that addressed. He asks a question that most of us wish we knew the answer to, right? I mean, it's a good question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And hey, he picked the right guy to ask. You know, if you want to know what you have to do to inherit eternal life, ask the Messiah. Ask the Christ. He has a need for exactly what scripture doesn't say, but we can kind of speculate if, you know, if we think about our own needs for knowing the answer to that question. I mean, maybe he needs to be assured of his salvation, or maybe he wants to know about the life beyond this one. Maybe he has a need for purpose or significance or a sense of peace. And those, are, I think, are all things that we can relate to. We have those needs as well. And when we have a need, we usually do something about it. We don't just sit back and go, well, I hope that gets resolved. No, we do something. And this man, you know, in his instance, he goes and he runs up to Jesus to ask the question. Um, I will ask you to think about today, when are you most aware of your need for God? Is it when everything is going well or when you have a need? The man in my, you know, as I imagine him, also has a need to belong I mean, he asks what he has to do to inherit. And that's a pretty key word there, inherit, because it implies a few things. Number one, it implies a close relationship and you know, most likely a family relationship, because if we think about inheritance, usually it's family members who inherit. So there's a question in this man's mind, does he belong? Does he belong to the family of God? And inheritance also implies a death, and I'll let you just figure that one out on your own. But the man is wondering, does he belong? Is he an heir to the inheritance of eternal life? So let's see what Jesus does with this. We're going to pick it up in verse 18. Jesus says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. So once again, the blank. Knowledge and good behavior are not enough. Knowledge and good behavior are not enough. So here's where the passage starts to get a bit difficult. Because we live in a culture that understands transactions, right? I mean, if I work... I get paid. If somebody's nice to me, I'm nice to them. I do this for you, you do this for me. If we obey the laws, we don't end up with, in jail or with a speeding ticket or a traffic violation. So we're used to this, you know, if I do this, 
then this happens. So uh, it's no wonder that we apply this to the commandments as well, right? I mean, if I'm a good person and I keep all the commandments, then I earn eternal life. I earn my place in God's family. This is how our transactional brain thinks about this. We like to think that by doing the right things, we can take comfort and find security in God's provision. Uh, I was reminded of this the other day when I watched uh, my son, Alan, who is now, he turns 24 next week. Um, when I watched him walk around the house with, like, something to eat, he was sort of following me as I was doing things, but he was needing to eat dinner, so he was walking around with food in his hand. And also following him was the dog, uh, who we named Dobby. So I walked around trying to get stuff done. Alan's following me, trying to have a conversation. The dog's like, where's the food, where's the food, where's the food? Yeah. And whenever Alan would stop, the dog would sit. The dog would sit really, you know, like really up, you know, upright. Like, are they pretty? Are they pretty? Do I get anything? You know, and if that wasn't enough, so the dog would be like, this paw? Do you have this paw? And that didn't work. So then the dog's like, how about this other one? I have two. I have two. Which one will work? You know, that, that's kind of how we are sometimes. So you think about it. I'm like, am I sitting well enough? Am I offering you the right paw? I mean, what do I get something for this, don't I? I mean, this is what the man is doing. If you think about it, he claims to have kept the commandments since he was a child. How many of us are that perfect? I mean, so now in his mind, he has sat correctly. He has offered both paws, and he gets eternal life. He has earned it. But here's where Christianity sort of messes us up because it's not what we do that makes us worthy and holy. God has already created us that way. So now what? Now what? Verse 21. Jesus looks at the man and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And at this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. So this blank, how would you fill it in? This is where you actually talk to me. How would you fill it in? We, we are asked to respond, sacrifice, give, obey. These are all great. I filled it in with follow. And I'm going to tell you why I put that there. This is not an easy passage. First, we learn that knowledge and good behavior aren't enough. Now Jesus says, sell everything, give it to the poor, and follow me. And in response, we read in verse 22 that the man goes away. This is not good news. So why in the world did I pick this passage? Um, here is a faithful man. He has done so much right. I mean, we see he kneels before Jesus. He is seeking God. These are great things. He is obeying commandments, perfectly or not, we don't know. And at Jesus' invitation to follow, he walks away. Jesus has named his idol. Because there's a commandment that Jesus doesn't mention in that list, and that is the commandment to have no other God before God. And there's the teaching that we are to love God with all our heart, our soul, and our might. And with this invitation to follow, Jesus challenges this man to consider who or what he loves. Who or what he worships. And that's why we squirm when money comes up in church. That's why we get annoyed. That's why we get uncomfortable. Because it makes us think about who or what do we worship. 
Who or what do we love? What idolatry does this passage expose in our lives? Because I think we could confidently say, like this man, we respect Jesus. We are here today because we willingly seek him out. We make time in our weekend to come and gather together, be it in person or online. We humble ourselves before Christ. We sing praises to God. We desire God's love. We want to belong to a family and a Christian community. We have made changes in our lives to grow in our faith by serving, by studying the Bible, by participating in small groups. We seek to obey those commandments. We seek to be shaped by Jesus' teaching. And like the man in the passage, we can make the mistake of thinking that eternal life is something that comes after we die, after we have earned it. But eternal life begins now. Our eternal destiny begins now. It's how we live now, how we experience God now, how we live in God's kingdom this very day, this very hour. And money is a part of it. See, we're only now arriving at money. I just want to point that out. Like it or not, how we spend our money reveals our priorities. It reveals our values. It says something about where we find our security, where we find our comfort. And faithful stewardship of what God has given us is part of following Jesus. It is part of our discipleship. Even if we want to like put it on the side and go, no, not really. It is part of our discipleship. The Jewish people and the disciples and Christians were encouraged to tithe. That means to give 10%. So God gives us 100% of what we have. We keep 90%. I think that's a really great percentage. And we give 10%. Uh, And as an example of that, I hope Pastor John hasn't told this story uh, too recently. But I still remember a story he told about taking Hunter to McDonald's for French fries. You haven't told it recently? Oh, good. Um, So... Hunter, okay, so Hunter in my mind is like here, just so we're clear. Um, Taking Hunter to to McDonald's and and, uh, John bought uh, Hunter some French fries, you know, because like six or seven-year-olds can't buy French fries on their own. So John buys uh, French fries for Hunter. And they sit down at the table and Hunter is enjoying his French fries because they're his. He was given them. And John goes to take one fry, one fry doesn't mine. 100%. We keep 90. John wasn't even asking for 10%. He wanted a fry. A fry. In a recent study of Christian giving, um, Relevant Magazine found that Christians give at a rate of, what would you say, what would be the percentage of giving that Christians give at? 2%. Any other guesses? 5 Any others? One, so uh, overall Christians give it a rate of 2.5%. That's a little bit far from 10. Just, just like, now United Methodists do a little bit better. We give it the rate of 3, 3%. Um, that's, the numbers are sometimes hard because they're, 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 not really always as tangible as you want them to be. So the magazine went ahead and did some calculations for us about what would happen if Christians uh, increased their giving to 10%, just that minimum of 10%. Uh, And they calculated um, that 
uh, it would result in an additional $165 billion for churches to use and distribute in ministry. $165 billion. Now, then you have to say, well, what could we do with $165 billion? Oh, I don't know. What do you do with $165 billion? So they did some more calculations, and they said, in five years, with $25 billion, we could relieve global hunger and starvation. In five years, with $12 billion, uh, we could eliminate illiteracy. With five years, $15 billion, we could solve water and sanitation issues in the developing world. One billion is enough to fully fund overseas mission work. Now, if you are really good at math in your head, you will realize that we've got a spare 100 billion. A spare 100 billion. What could we do with a spare 100 billion? What could Christ Church do in the community with that amount of money? What could all of our churches do locally to glorify God, to serve their neighbor? with those extra funds. You know, people can and do give for a variety of reasons, and, you know, some of them are better than others. I mean, some of us give out of duty, like, I need to do this. I'm just going to, like, just do what I have to do. Some people give to churches because they get a break on their taxes. They like that, you know, that, that uh, break in, you know, in their taxable income. Some people give because they want to obey Jesus. Some people give because they want to feel good. And, you know, there is study after study that says giving makes people feel better. You know, if you could spend money on yourself or you could spend money on somebody else, it feels better for you to spend money on someone else. And I think God created us that way. Some people give because they like the vision and mission of the church. Uh, before we got in here this morning, I was asking John, I was saying, what, what year did the church start? 1987. 1987, a bunch of people said, hey, wouldn't it be good to give money to start a church in Fairfax Station? And we're here today because they did. Some people give because they like the vision and mission of the church. They believe that their resources aren't God's, or aren't theirs, they belong to God, and that God entrusted them with the stewardship, and so they want to give back to make sure that more people hear about God. I mean, think about those people in 1987 who made it possible for us to be here today. They bought into that vision. They bought into that mission of serving God in this community. Now, it is relatively easy for me to stand up here and tell you to give proportionately because I come from a family of tithers. It has been a practice I have observed from a very young age. I used to get a dime for my allowance, and I used to get my dime in, in 10 pennies because one penny went to the church every week in that little offering envelope that probably cost more than the penny that I put in it. Um, but that's you know how I was raised. I... Who knows, my tithing could have gone back further in my family. I just know for sure that three generations have tithed. Uh, and I will say that when it is a regular practice, you don't miss the money. I know some people don't give because they're like, oh, I might miss having that much income. Um, I went to college. I went to graduate school. My parents paid for my wedding. My parents were able to retire. I mean, nobody's missing the money in my family. Uh, my dad, in fact, at one point um, had read the passage in Micah 
where uh, God, through the prophet, invites uh, people to bring the tithe into the storehouse and says to the people, you know, test me in this. See if you can outgive me. So my dad's like, well, all right then, let's see what happens. So he stepped up beyond the tithe. Now, I'm not a big fan of telling people uh, to test God, but if you have not tried tithing, I want to encourage you, or at least proportionate giving more than 3%, please, um, you might want to try it. Set yourself a time period. I'm going to do it for a month. I'm going to do it for three months. I'm going to give it half a year. See what it feels like. See what it looks like in my family's income. See what the church can do with it. Hey, aren't you glad that somebody's paying for the air conditioning today? I mean, that's good stuff. <laughs> I went outside to, to, to record the, the online welcome, and it's hot out there. I'm a fan of air conditioning being paid for. But more importantly than that, I want you to see how it affects your relationship with money. See if it changes how you relate to money during that time period. And even more important, how does it change your relationship with Christ? Are you leaning into Jesus more? Are you depending on Jesus more? Are you seeking Jesus more? Do you feel more a part of the mission because you're giving more to it? So I'm going to go back to the passage. We have no idea what the man does or does not give out of his funds. We only know what scripture tells us, and that is that he walks away. Now, I will say again, this is not a great passage to preach. Um, I first preached it as a seminary student. I did my um, field education at Trinity United Methodist Church in McLean, um, which is a great place to preach about money. Um, the... Uh, <laughs> The church stewardship committee decided that they were going to do this four-week uh, stewardship series, and they had this book, and there were passages in it, and uh, one was, you know, how God provides for the lilies of the field, and another passage was the one where it was like, give and it will be given unto you, uh, pressed down and shaken together, and there was a third one I can't remember, and then there was this one. So the senior pastor gets the book, and he goes, these two, these are good. And then the associate pastor gets the book, and she picks the third one I can't remember. And then poor seminary student is left with this passage to preach in McLean, um, where Jesus tells the man to sell everything and give it away, and yay. <laughs> I haven't even finished my Bible classes yet. Um, but man, it made me wrestle with the passage because you're like, where's the good news? I need the good news. So I want to say right now, if you ignore everything else I've set up to now, don't miss verse 21. Don't miss it. It starts with Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus loved this man. And he invited the man to come follow. Jesus did not ask for the money. Jesus didn't say sell everything and bring your money and come with me. Jesus didn't say, sell everything, give your money to Judas and come with me. Jesus said, sell everything you got, get rid of it, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Jesus wanted the man. Jesus wanted that man. He loved the man. Jesus doesn't want your money. I know the church sometimes seems like that. So hear that. Jesus doesn't want your money. Jesus wants you. And if money gets in the way of you following, in the way of your pursuit of eternal life, 
in the way of God giving you that gift, then yes, we are going to be asked to let go of that idol. We are going to be asked to release those resources that God has given into our care for kingdom work. We are going to be asked to be better stewards and not hoarders of our wealth. We can give out of duty. Those funds are useful for church ministry. They, they pay for air conditioning and mission trips and, and youth groups and, and pastor's salaries. Those are useful gifts. But when we give because we love and trust God more than we love and trust money, that becomes sanctifying in our lives. That becomes transforming. We look ever more like a disciple of Jesus Christ when we do, when we give with that attitude, when we give out of that mindset. We look ever more like a Jesus follower. And that's the invitation that Jesus issued to that man. That's the invitation that Jesus holds out before us today. That invitation to come follow. That invitation to belong to the family of God, to participate in the work of God's family, to be loved, to know grace, to live life eternally. When we give, we gain so much more. Let's pray together. Holy and loving God, we thank you for all the resources you pour into our lives, for gifts that we sometimes take for granted. Help us this morning, God, to open our eyes, to open our ears, to hear your invitation, to come follow, to see that you do love us for who we are and nothing more, nothing less, that you desire that we Know the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. Know the gift that he offers us of eternal life. And we ask this morning, God, that uh, if money is getting in the way of us experiencing your love and your grace, that you would help us take those first steps to begin to release our grasp on it. Begin to release resources back to you that you may be glorified. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.